From Olympic City and the home of Pikes Peak, this is the Automotive ADHD Show. Oh yeah, here we are rocking it on the Automotive ADHD Show, heard around the world as a podcast, and right here as well on the radio in Southern Colorado, Matt West here, hanging out with you to talk about cars. That is what this show is about, and hopefully that is what you are here for as well. Now, I have a very packed show for you today. Very packed. There's been all sorts of stuff going on. We are going to talk about Toyota's track use warranty and follow up on the guy from a few weeks ago who had his GR86 warranty claim denied because he had his car on track. We're going to follow up with that. Sounds like he's getting some resolution. Also, also, uh, somebody found the NASA Shuttle Command vehicle for sale and bought it. So, yeah, we'll get to that. Also, we're going to hit on some more sobering news. A dangerous trend in the car scene has led to the death of two people over the weekend. So we're going to talk about that because I think it's important for us to do that. But we're going to get to all of that stuff. And we're going to get to a listener-submitted question about squatted trucks. You know, the uh, the Cali Lean, the Carolina Squat, the Tennessee Tilt, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's called many things. And I'm going to share my opinions on it because I have been asked to do so, and I will oblige with that. So, but before I do that, uh, we're also going to play your car sounds here as well. I can't wait to do that. I got a really cool one that was sent in this week, so I'm excited to play that. He knows who he is. But um, I spent uh, the weekend, and there there is a reason I'm uploading the show a little later this week. Um, that's because I spent the weekend. I took some time off just to spend time with family Been having some long work weeks, you know, so I decided, you know, it's important to take a little bit of time off, go up in the mountains, spend some time with uh, family and visited uh the Oktoberfest celebration in Breckenridge, Colorado. But this ties into car stuff, and I'll tell you about it here, because what's interesting is I, you know, decided to drive the uh, AE86. Yeah, I'm one of my, one of the 86s I have, the one that actually runs, clarifying that. The other one doesn't run yet. The Volvo swapped one, I, it's been a long time since I've talked about that. There's some really cool updates on that, but... I will get to that because I don't usually, I don't always talk about my own cars here on the show. That's not what the show is for. But I was driving my red AE86 coupe, which has a 20-valve blacktop 4AGE. It's uh, got ITBs. It's really fun. And it runs on an Arduino as an ECU. Specifically, it uses a Speedduino ECU that was uh, put together by friend of the show, OBD1 Kenobi. And uh, if you've listened for a long time, you know who he is. And he is a phenomenally good tuner and mechanic though he he won't tell you that himself but i think everyone knows he's he's really good at what he does so uh i always always like to talk about the tuning work that he does but i was driving the 86 up and the thing is so the 86 runs ethanol and due to my own laziness not anything that (laughs) brian did but to my own laziness i have not yet installed or wired up a flex fuel sensor and uh, I was like, you know what? Uh, screw it. You know, we're just going to go ethanol only. We're going to see how this goes. And I've been running it on ethanol only for for several months now. I really like the car on ethanol. It does really good on ethanol, uh, specifically E85. And uh, so when Brian did the tune for it, we only did it for E85. And I decided to see if I could make the trip from Colorado Springs to Breckenridge Then back to Colorado Springs again on E85 only. And this is one of those things where you kind of commit yourself 
that you commit to yourself, you know, that, okay, I'm going to see if this is possible. And if it's not possible, we'll figure that out later. <laughs> we'll figure out what to do later. And uh, because the issue is finding ethanol in the mountains can be a little difficult, especially these high mountain towns. There's several, you know, the trip, it's about two and a half hours. There's a couple different routes you can take. Bunch of high mountain Colorado towns that you're lucky if you have gasoline there, let alone ethanol. And um, and sure enough, there were, I, you know, I, I made the trip up. I burned a little over half a tank driving up. Now, the 86, when it was on pump gas, got about 28 miles to the gallon. Now, since switching to ethanol, it gets about 22 miles to the gallon. But because I was going uphill, there were, uh, you know, some pretty technical mountain passes. Uh, and uh, I burned a little more fuel than if I was just cruising on the highway. So I burned a little over half a tank of fuel, and I thought, uh-oh, this isn't good because I burned over half a tank coming here, uh, which, by the way, the Oktoberfest celebration, it was a lot of fun. It was a, it was a fun way to just kind of not do any work or car stuff for a couple days, and again, was up there with the whole family, so uh, it was a really good time. But that said, um, you know, I was like, well, fortunately, the trip back down is mostly downhill, but I decided to take a separate route that would take me past Denver instead of the most direct route to Colorado Springs because there was no way I was going to make it back to Colorado Springs with that. And uh, I now understand what EV drivers deal with when it comes to range anxiety um, because I was started, you know, <laughs> I got down to um, I-70. Really beautiful drive. If you do want to see some photos, I have a photo up on the Facebook page. I mean, gorgeous scenery. But once I got out of the mountains, the highest point I reached was uh, 11,990 feet at the top of Loveland Pass. And uh, the car was running great even up there, even on the ethanol. Everything was running really awesome. Um, but I get down the pass. I get to Interstate 70 and run into a traffic jam. Oh, yeah, that's always what you want to run into once you start dipping beneath a quarter tank of gas. And then you suddenly see brake lights. And I mean, it was such a bad traffic jam that I was there for probably two and a half hours, just stopped. And what I ultimately did was I just turned my car off. I'm like, I don't want to even burn fuel idling here because I'm now at like an eighth of a tank of fuel and uh, just just coasted when I needed to. When the traffic would inch forward, it was fortunately kind of downhill the whole way. I just kind of let off the brakes, coast forward, let off the brakes, coast forward. So I think that's probably what saved me is literally turning the car off. And at least on that car, it's not like I lose power steering or anything when I turn it off because, you know, it doesn't have power steering. But that said, uh, I passed probably three EV charging stations before I actually found any gas stations with ethanol. No, like three EV charging stations. These Even in these high mountain little towns, they have EV charging stations, but no ethanol, which is crazy to me. Because, like, you think the EV charging station would be secondary to getting fuel, but maybe it's the logistics, maybe it's the fact that they have to truck up a second, you know, fuel truck for the ethanol, maybe it's just not, it's not practical and it doesn't make any money, but that's almost, like, the weird thing is, had I done that trip in an electric car, I would have had an easier time with it than if I was doing it on ethanol only. Now, okay, all you guys who already run ethanol, if you already do... You're like, come on, man, that's what flex fuels for. So the whole point of a flex fuel sensor is it's a sensor that can determine the ratio of ethanol and gasoline passing through it. You put it in line and with your, your fuel line and then you're, that communicates to your ECU. Usually in this case has to be an aftermarket ECU, though uh, some factory vehicles have supported flex fuel since the uh, mid 2000s. But typically speaking, 
your standalone ECU then has a table, which it references for your fuel trims and your fuel and your spark table and all that stuff. And it looks at the amount of ethanol versus gasoline and it compensates for that in every way. It is the ultimate solution that if you can't find ethanol, you put pump gas in. If you uh, have half a tank of ethanol and you put half a tank of pump gas in, no problem. It's going to compensate for that. Doing what I did is not necessarily advisable, especially going on a long distance trip um, into the mountains, into many, many rural areas before reaching Breckenridge. Breckenridge itself isn't rural. Breckenridge is very developed and very nice, but it also didn't have any E85. So I was, again, a little disappointed in that, especially because, you know, a lot of the people who, you know, go up to those mountain towns or you know, usually kind of environmentally friendly people, you know, they drive EVs, they, they go skiing in the winter, you know, that it's that sort of crowd. And yet there is no ethanol. So I don't know. I mean, you know, isn't ethanol supposed to be pretty good, right? It's supposed to be pretty darn close to, you know, net zero carbon zero. It's debatable whether or not it really is, but regardless, it's a good fuel. I really like it. It's good for performance. And when gas spiked up to over $5 a gallon, Ethanol stayed about the same. So that was also a huge benefit there. So the moral of the story here, I made it with about a gallon to spare. I made it back down to Denver with about a gallon, maybe a little less than a gallon to spare, uh, which was, that's a little closer than I like to cut it. I don't like being below half a tank usually. That's not, not usually a good place to be, but uh, I, you barely made it, you know, the whole way thinking, oh, come on, every gas station, I'm passing past every one of them. Oh, do they have ethanol, ethanol, ethanol? Nope, no ethanol here. Do they have ethanol here? Nope, nope, no ethanol there. And I even stopped and looked at the, there's a uh, government website that is actually a biofuel station finder. And it's, it's a .gov official website. And its purpose is to, on a map, tell you where all the fuels are, or the stations are that sell biofuel, as in ethanol. And I found that this was interesting because, one thing I learned, if you are planning a trip around ethanol only, um, you can't rely on that website because I did. I said, okay, I'm going to plug in my address into there where I'm at and see where the next station is that has ethanol. Well, that didn't work because it reported that certain stations had ethanol. And I was like, great, there's one here just down the road. It's uh, it's in Idaho Springs. No problem. And then then it didn't have ethanol. <laughs> it didn't have ethanol. Was it there? Um, th several times. I, I passed several areas that reportedly sold ethanol, but did not have ethanol. So I guess moral of the story, my reason for sharing this is you can't always trust that website. And uh, if you're going to run ethanol, you totally should. You totally should run ethanol. Granted, it's a little less efficient. Again, I get about 22 MPG on the ethanol versus 28 on pump gas. But uh, yeah, flex fuel, that exists for a reason. Like years ago, years ago, over over a decade ago, they figured this out that, yeah, just running the ethanol is probably an issue. Let's do this flex fuel thing. And, and you know, in, in my own, you know, stupidity, I was like, no, I don't need it. Let's uh, it's a twenty five dollar sensor. Screw it. I'll do it later. <laughs> and uh, the whole way, though, the whole way back, I was again, I got to experience kind of what it's like to be an EV driver. So is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't know. Moral of the story, just spend like twenty five bucks on the sensor. If you're doing a standalone ECU, it's. Whatever, whatever. I tested it for your sake so you don't have to. And that's one reason why you listen here to the show because of the stupid stuff that I do, you know, in research. We'll call it for research purposes. So there you go. Now, hey, before we get on to some of the other segments of the show, I have, again, I have a lot of stuff to talk about here. Uh, some really important stuff. 
when it comes to street takeovers and other things like that. But one thing I want to get to here before we wrap up the first segment is um, I had a listener, listener Dylan, and shout out to Dylan for being such a fantastic listener, but he sent in a question and he wanted to know my thoughts on squatted trucks. What do I think about them? Where do they come from? All of the above. And I'm going to share that with you because, uh, and also if you do have sounds, or not sounds, but if you have thoughts that you want to send in, you can always do that. That's what the Facebook page is for. That is my way to interact with you. It's tougher when you do podcasting compared to, say, YouTube and other stuff. You got comments and stuff. People can send you right away there. Here, it's a little different. So we use the Facebook page for interacting. It works great. Um, but Dylan wants to know my thoughts on these squatted trucks. And firstly, getting out what they're called. Because you will know these things as maybe, depending on where you live, you either know them as the Cali Lean trucks, the Carolina Squat, or the Tennessee Tilt. All of the above. And, uh, you know, and, and they're all the same thing. So what these are, are when guys take trucks, usually they put big chrome wheels on them that have low profile tires. That's one sign of it. But the main thing is they dump the back of the truck. They lower the back and raise the front. And by raising the front, we're not talking a little bit. We're not talking like you're leveling kid or any of that stuff. We're talking they raise the front by, you know, 15 inches, 30 inches, like, like actual feet sometimes. I mean, it's substantial. The front of these trucks are jacked so high up in the air that we'll get to one of the first problems with them, which is visibility. Um, that's one issue with them. But before I discuss issues, it's kind of interesting to note where this stuff came from. And the leading theory is that squatted trucks actually came from trophy truck race trucks. Now, like many things, uh, a good idea starts in motorsports and then people kind of repeat that idea and distort it a little bit for their street cars, more for the visual aesthetic purpose. The squatted trucks you see on the streets definitely don't share the physical purpose that squatting a race truck does. For one, squatted race trucks, um, again, trophy trucks, Baja trucks, any of those things, they, they're designed for racing in the desert in off-road conditions at triple digit speeds over insane terrain and they're going super fast over it and they have huge long travel suspension and they are purpose-built race trucks even though they share maybe the looks of a production truck that's merely a fiberglass body on a purpose-built tube frame chassis it shares no parts with the street truck right no parts whatsoever and these vehicles are purpose-built and they will have a slight rearward rake. If you have a regular rake to your vehicle, that's usually the front tilted down and the back up a little bit. Most trucks from the factory, most production street trucks, have a little bit of forward rake with the back being higher than the front. And that's because those trucks are designed to haul stuff. And when you load things into the bed, then you want the suspension to be level under load. That's the point. Um, the race trucks are the opposite of that. They have a slight rake to the rear in a very slight squat. And the reason for doing that is partially for traction and it's partially for when they jump these trucks and the suspension compresses and the way they want the trucks to land. All of the above. Basically, there's a performance reason for doing this. Again, under power, you want the rear of that truck to squat down a little bit, grab a little bit more traction. Um, so there is a genuine reason for doing it. Now, I guarantee any truck that you see on the street probably doesn't have this reason in mind. It's the same difference as stance cars versus race cars, right? The stance culture, you can say, is loosely related to the fact that purpose-built race cars run a little, they tend to run a lower ride height, keep that center of gravity low, and they run a little bit of negative camber, meaning the wheels tip in just a little bit. The idea for doing that is 
you have, and I'm getting technical here, and I know I'm getting a little away from the squatted trucks, but this is important stuff. It's cool. The idea of running negative camber on a track car, for instance, that's meant to do like a road course, a circuit, anything like that, is that when you're in the corner, that negative camber, again, the tops of the wheels pointing inward, so the wheels are kind of pointing inward. Um, the reason you do that is so when you're in the corner under load, that tire levels out and actually flattens out in a corner under load. Therefore, you're actually getting traction in the corner instead of having that tire roll over its its center, if you will. And that's, again, it's important, but that's only like, you know, a couple degrees of negative camber. When you're pushing, you know, double digits of negative camber, you get the stance guys. And it's become a visual aesthetic because of show car culture, which is fine. I'm not here to diss on anyone's stance cars or builds, though some stance cars are a little ridiculous. A couple months ago, I talked about a guy who literally has to take the wheel off and put a rubber hose up to the filler neck in his gas tank just every t every time he fills fills up with gas like that's that's maybe a little uh, a little too extreme but that said it comes from that culture right it's it's a visual aesthetic that comes from mimicking a race car but doing it to the extreme and it kind of becomes different over time and becomes its own culture that's totally fine if you like the stance cars that's good for you because, you know, I like track cars. I like JDM cars, but that doesn't mean that other things are wrong. Not by any stretch of the imagination, right? So back to the squatted trucks. The squatted trucks, I, you know, again, they are purely for show. They're purely for aesthetic. And it is an aesthetic that comes only to certain people's tastes. I, it definitely is not part of my taste. And, um, you know, and if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. And the fact is that it, it serves no performance function. Okay. So no performance whatsoever. In fact, it detracts from the truck's performance. What little on street performance those trucks actually have. They're designed for, you know, utility hauling stuff, but by sticking the front end of the truck up so high, you limit your visibility. Um, you're basically you're as a driver, you're looking into the sky, you know, you can't see, and also, you're limiting the suspension and handling characteristics of that truck and your stopping ability, too, because you're limiting how that truck's body can tip forward and backward, how it transfers weight. One fundamental of performance driving is weight transfer. And again, these guys aren't doing any performance driving, but it's helpful to know that anytime you're on the street, because that's going to affect your overall braking and stopping performance in any context, even with a factory car manufacturers design suspension to have a certain amount of weight transfer, have the car tip forward or backward under acceleration and braking. They're designed to do that. And it's carefully, cars are carefully engineered to do that in a way that's safe and predictable. And uh, by doing that with these trucks, you're really ruining those characteristics of it. And don't even get me started on the cornering characteristics that have lateral weight transfer left and right. I mean, that's totally out the window with these squatted trucks. So they're unsafe in that regard. You can't see where you're going as a driver. And unlike, they're similar to donk culture, D-O-N-K, which is sedans usually like Crown Victorias and, you know, stuff like that, Monte Carlos that are lifted and have big wheels on them. The thing is they're uniformly lifted. Um, donk, I think, I do think squatted truck culture comes from a little bit of donk culture. It shares some aesthetic with it. Um, and I will admit some of the fabrication and engineering that goes into some donk cars uh is is uh, is really incredible again it's maybe not my thing but i respect the work the guys put into it i mean some of the stuff they do is insanely technical and insanely cool and has a ton of you know man hours of labor into it not every not every car is created equal though there are some ones that are just built poorly and give the whole scene a bad rap but i think 
squatted trucks kind of come from that. But there's not as much of a safety issue with the donk culture as there is with the squatted trucks. Because again, the squatted trucks, you're really limiting that vehicle's ability to do anything. And you're limiting the driver's ability to see. And I've even heard some squatted truck guys say, oh, that's okay. I got a, I got a solution. We put we put backup cameras in the front of the truck so we can see in front of us. But the fact that you have to put a backup camera in the front of your truck to solve a problem that doesn't need to exist in the first place, that's a little suspect. But I will leave that up to you to decide whether or not that's uh, that's a good idea. The, the fact is, I mean, hey, these guys are doing what they want with their trucks. Makes them happy. Good for them. Good for them. That's what the car scene, that's what car culture, that's what being an enthusiast is all about. But there you go. Now you kind of know some of my thoughts on the squatted trucks. I think they're a little ridiculous. I do think they pose somewhat of a safety risk. I wouldn't want to be at a stoplight. Let me put it this way. I wouldn't want to be the first guy at a stoplight and have one of these guys pull up directly behind me because they probably won't see me and they will probably run over me. And that has actually happened to some folks. They've gotten rear-ended by these trucks. Uh, is it a wide issue? No, no, it's, it's not a wide issue, but it has happened. And again, it's just... <laughs> You know, it's the show car scene, right? You know, it's it's definitely form over function. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily agree with that. But, you know, the fact is, it's your car. You can do what you want with it. That's what we that's what we live by. That's uh, that's how that is. So <laughs> there you go. Now, hey, Dylan, thank you for uh, sending those thoughts in, sending those questions in. I appreciate it. And thank you for being a fantastic listener of the show you rock. So there you go. Now, I want to talk about a fairly serious topic here, okay? We're going to get a little serious with a dangerous trend in the car scene that is actually resulted in the death of a couple people. So it is, it is a topic I want to talk about. We're going to get to that and some other fun stuff as well coming up here after the break. And now for how things work with an engineer. CVT Transmissions. And that was How Things Work with an Engineer. For more of How Things Work, go to patreon.com slash throttlewarrior. Oh yeah, there we are. Rocking it on the Automotive ADHD show. That car sound was sent in by Lucas. That is his... It hey, sounds like a 2JZ, right? Because that is, but it's in... A very cool car. That is a 2JZ swapped RX-8. And I think that's super cool. I mean, firstly, I mean, anything 2J swapped is a lot of fun. The 2JZ is such a cool motor. Um, I mean, you know, obviously 2JZs, you know, live in originally in Mark IV Supras, Toyota Soars, all sorts of stuff in their naturally aspirated form as well. Uh, but that is super cool to see an RX-8 with that drivetrain in it. Also, because I think the RX-8s, are a little misunderstood, just a little bit, because I think a lot of folks, when those cars came out, you're coming from the prior generation, which was the RX-7 FD, the last generation of the RX-7, with those beautiful body lines, that rotary engine, all of that stuff. And I think a lot of people were a little disappointed by the RX-8 when it came out. But what people didn't realize was, oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not as cool as the RX-7 before. No, what people didn't realize is how good of a chassis the RX-8 is. I mean, you look at period correct, you know, kind of like road tests and reviews and track tests. That RX-8 is a brilliant handling car with great, great development into the chassis, into the suspension, into the way it handles. 
I personally think they're great looking. I do. I, in fact, I remember wanting one at one point in time. And uh, life happened in a way where I, I never had one. I've never owned one. I have had friends who've had them before, though. Uh, I think they're really cool cars, personally. And I really want to thank you, Lucas, for sending that car sound in. That sounds insane with the 2J in it on the dyno. Oh, man. Super cool build. Super, super fun stuff. Thank you for doing that. And, of course, you will be entered for a chance to win some cool stuff. Yes, the automotive ADHD keychain, the sticker, and is a uh, and a uh, $25 parts store gift card. I know 25 bucks maybe doesn't go a long way in building a 2J or doing any of that stuff. They're, they're pretty pricey, but it's always it's a drop in the bucket. It helps out. And it, plus, you, you didn't have to do like anything for it. So it's, it's free stuff. So I'm going to do, I'm going to pull the winner for this month here at the end of this month as well. Uh, probably for uh, that will be next week's show. So uh, listen then for the winner for this month. Super cool stuff. Of course, send those car sounds in facebook.com slash automotive ADHD, or you can email me Matt at throttlewarrior.com. I love playing those sounds on the radio, on the podcast. You can tell your friends, hey, listen to the show. My car's on the show this week. It's all cool stuff. So that is very neat. Now, I want to get to a serious topic here. And, uh, you know, this show's always fun. I like to keep it lighthearted. We do touch on serious topics, though, when we need to. We do we do that because sometimes you just have to acknowledge these things and have to talk about them and talk about what they mean, especially for the car enthusiast scene as a whole. You know, we do this stuff because we love it. And this is one thing that happened over the weekend. Uh, here, let me just roll this sound clip here. Check this out. Good evening, I'm Joe Holden. This new video into the Eyewitness Newsroom shows the arrest of the man now charged with hitting and killing two people in Wildwood. Last night, officials arrested 37-year-old Gerald White after what they are calling an unsanctioned car event. It turned into deadly chaos. Okay, so what happened there was specifically the H2OI or H2O International uh, event. And we're going to talk a little bit about the backstory of this event, what it is. It doesn't exist right now, just as a, a heads up here. It doesn't exist in its current form like it did years ago. It's not even run by the same people. The event H2OI is practically dead, but other, you could say, wannabe events or other events are happening within the same name of it, okay? Uh, but what these are essentially are street takeover events. And street takeovers happen, and perhaps you've been to them, perhaps you've seen them. I have even seen them here in my own town of Colorado Springs. Uh, they do, they happen all over the country, and usually no one gets hurt. Usually no one gets hurt. And they're usually here being the key word, because it doesn't mean always, right? Uh, but that said, they are events where folks gather around, usually after car meets, go to an intersection, close down the whole intersection, and then do donuts in, inside that intersection, all while blocking traffic, all while dozens of people on foot gather around the car doing the donuts, trying to get as close as possible while filming the whole thing with their cell phones. You'll see dozens, if not hundreds, of cell phones in the air. And I will admit, it is quite the spectacle. If you are just driving by, and I, I have just been driving by when one of these have happened, it's quite the spectacle. You sit there, you can't go anywhere, you're stuck in traffic, might as well poke your head out and see the guy doing donuts. But the problem is, um, these are a, the sort of event that if they go badly, they can go very badly. And that's what happened over the weekend, um, where this gentleman who was driving his car, he was uh, driving, I believe it was a 2003 Infinity, and he hit a 2014 Honda Civic, 
and then glanced off of that Honda Civic and hit two pedestrians, one of which died from their injuries. Uh, one of the passengers of that Civic also died uh, after the fact, which is tragic. Anytime, anytime doing this stuff ends in the death of someone, you can't, you can't replace that person. You can't, that, that's just the, the worst way, the worst outcome for something like this. And the problem with these events happening, again, H2OI is, that's, that's been an event. A, it was famous when it started. I remember about hearing it, hearing about it probably as early as 2016. And when H2OI started, it was famous for being the most ticketed car show in the country. Uh, and also one of the most reckless ones as well. People would come from around the country to descend on a town where the event was happening and do just degenerate stuff and hoon their cars around. A lot of it was fine. Daytime meets, stance meets. A lot of it was honestly pretty harmless. And uh, But at certain times, it could get out of hand. Now, the original event, again, I... Uh, you know, I've never participated in one of these, but from what I understand, the original event, the original organizers have come and gone and that these other events under the same name have been happening under different organization, effectively having no relation to the first event aside from being in name only. And they've definitely gotten out of hand. Anytime you have someone who does something that results in the death of others, that's definitely getting out of hand. And why this is a problem is because this reflects on the entire enthusiast community and it reflects poorly on it even though maybe you and myself had nothing to do with this if we had nothing to do with it it doesn't matter because because of social media because everyone's got a camera phone because everyone's recording this stuff it has been and this this stuff is don't get me wrong it has happened for years up until now it's, it's been going on for years street racing as a whole goes back to the very first cars since there were cars people have been street racing them that's not anything new but What's happened is the public perception of it here is definitely new and definitely changed because mainstream media has been picking up on this stuff and been reporting it in a national context. And people who are not car people, you could you could call them normies, right? You know, people who don't don't know how to enjoy their cars, but they their first uh, their first introduction into the car scene into enthusiast culture might be one of these things that happens. Maybe it happens in their town and they see it on the news. Maybe they see it on the national news, like this story here. Uh, that might be their first introduction to car culture. They see all these slammed cars. They see cars with big wings. They see aftermarket wheels. They see just in general modified looking cars and they see them doing this and then they associate it with the bad things that happen. Now, you and I may have a modified looking car and we may have had nothing to do with this, but through sheer association, if we pass this same hypothetical non-car person who just saw this on the news in our car, they're immediately going to have thoughts about who we are and what we do, and they're going to be negative thoughts. And that's a problem because in a world right now where we have New York attempting to implement speed limiter laws requiring that cars have speed limiters fitted to them um, and to, to specifically stop all speeding and other things forcefully, uh, and, you know, as car enthusiasts, we push back against that because we don't want any government control. We don't want any more regulation over our cars than we already have. We want to be in control of the car at all times. We don't want, as enthusiasts, typically we don't want computers doing it. We don't want any of that stuff. And so in our, you know, in our sense of trying to defend ourselves from these, this legislation that happens, like New York speed limiter law, um, that hasn't officially been passed, but it's been proposed, bear in mind. Uh, it hasn't passed yet, but 
in our defense, trying to get away from laws like that and trying to appeal to our legislators and say, this is an over, this is an overstep. This is too much. We don't want this. Well, our arguments completely get washed out by of things that happen like these deadly street takeovers. These street takeovers are bad for everyone because perhaps a congressman who, again, doesn't know anything about cars, but they listen to their constituents, the people who they represent. And sure, some of us as car enthusiasts who may also, you know, write our congressman about, say, the RPM Act, they might say, okay, but I've also had a lot of other constituents complain about this rampant street takeover stuff, which again, I don't think the incidents of this have actually increased. I just think it's garnered more media attention now than it has in the past. But the fact is, uh, say a congressman who's not into cars doesn't know, but they are doing their best to represent their their people are going to hear also the complaints of people wanting to shut this stuff down. And maybe then that congressperson, that congressman is going to then vote for a, uh, you know, is going to to, you know, try to support a bill as well for speed limiters. So my whole point here is it's all connected. It's all tied together. And to get out of, you know, to to have laws like the speed limiter thing proposed that we, I think, universally as car enthusiasts would all object to, but then have our reasonable arguments against a law like that be discredited because of reckless people, because of the actions of a few bad actors that had big implications that then affects everybody. And that's something we need to avoid as a whole. That's why I said this is a serious topic, but I think it's important to talk about. And, and what, you know, this doesn't mean, oh, don't go to car meets. Don't go to car meets at night. Uh, there's car meets I enjoy going to at night uh, that are fun. I like going out, seeing interesting builds, swaps, all sorts of stuff, talking to the owners. Sure, they are unsanctioned events, but that also doesn't mean that, oh, well, we need to sanction all events to make them safe. Not true at all. Uh, you know, sometimes these smaller little groups just organized on social media, you get together, there's food, you get food at, you know, the strip mall behind where the meat is, and then you hang out for an hour or two, check out some stuff, then you cruise with some friends, get some coffee, you know, on a weekday night or something like that. You know, you know, that's that's not the problem here. And the problem with these uh, events is a lot of times they take place after meets. It's maybe a few members of a meet or a group then go to this other event where then they do something that's very dangerous. Uh, Cause again, sometimes this is more dangerous than just, you know, street racing on a back road where no one is, you know, that's, you're only risking yourself at that point it, in most cases, but uh, I'm not going to officially sanction any of that. But the fact is that because people are leaving otherwise legit events to then go do this stuff, which is blocking traffic, which is potentially hurting people, the, sanction not the sanctioning but the governing bodies that be now are going to target otherwise innocent meets and events saying this is this is where it starts we're going to cut that off so it doesn't turn into that and again we don't want that for the rest of us law-abiding people who are enjoying cars we don't want that and we don't again want any more intervention in that stuff than there already is and for instance, here's a good example. And then we'll move on from this. Again, this is a car show where I <laughs> it's always try to I try to keep it light. I try to keep it fun. But I do need to talk about important stuff here and there. Um, for instance, in my own city here in Colorado Springs, about two years ago, the city council implemented an ordinance that I took a little bit of an issue with. And I read up on it as they were voting on it, as they were doing stuff. But basically what it does and why I'm telling you this, I know a lot of uh, my listeners don't live here in the Springs, but I'm just relating this to how this affects all of us. Uh, and what this ordinance does is it 
allows the city, it allows police officers in the city to impound and confiscate cars without an actual crime having to have been committed with that car. And it's written in such a loose way that they can interpret it any way they want in terms of they can say uh, this car promotes street racing culture, even though the driver and the car have done no street racing. It promotes street racing culture, and that's bad. It looks modified, and it quote-unquote promotes that culture. So at the officer's discretion at a car meet, he could just impound your car. Now, this hasn't happened, thankfully. It looks like the bill, or not the bill, this was an ordinance, uh, but it looks like it was written very broadly for that reason. But thankfully, they've not acted on it that way. But the point is, they are doing this. Governments are doing this specifically because of events like this that turn into a dangerous thing. And then that affects all of us. And we don't want that again. So, you know, what what can we do about it? I would say, you know, at the very least, you can avoid being, you know, the ones doing the street takeovers. And I get it. It's it's something unusual. Like, whoa, look at all these people. They're doing donuts. There's tire smoke. It can be exciting in the moment. And I totally get that. Like I said, I have I have seen my share of these these things. Um, I've never participated in one, but I, I've seen my share in these things. And, you know, I get that it can be exciting. It can be different. And, you know, there could be some adrenaline involved. But is it is it worth it if it turns bad? That's the question. And I think the answer is no. So, yeah, there there you go. There you go. Now, I don't want to stay on this heavy topic too long. My thoughts do go out to the families of those um, who were killed in this last weekend's H2OI event. And um, that's just something I think needs that needs to stop or else the general public who's not into cars is going to start complaining to legislators and legislators are then going to look at all of us as the villain, even though we have nothing to do with it. You have a modified car. It's got a big wing. You're lowered. Maybe you've got some camber, you know, some aftermarket wheels. Well, that looks like it's promoting street racing culture and we can't have that. Um, and that's and we need to avoid that as enthusiasts. We need to avoid that outcome. That's also why it's super important that we support the RPM Act. I talked about this on last week's show. This is going to be a reoccurring thing. I'm going to mention this a lot because we need to support the RPM Act. You know, I, I don't want to stay political here on the show, but this is a section of politics that really, really matters for everyone who likes to do car stuff, it limits the EPA's authority to regulate cars for track use, specifically street cars that have been converted to track use. And it relates to your ability to modify your car at all at the at the end of the day. And um, and it limits that authority. And uh, by the way, I do have on the Facebook page, I have a link to the RPM Act, the page. You can check it out. There's a really convenient link when you go to that page that will uh, you put in your location, just your, your city or your state, and it'll hook you up with the congressperson and state representative in your area. And then it has even a pre-built letter. You don't even have to write the letter. You can write your own thing if you want, but it's got a pre-built letter that you can just click send, go straight to them, let them know what you think about the RPM Act. You need to support that stuff if you like cars at all. So there's <laughs> there's my political soapbox for the day, uh, but definitely check that out. I am going to get to some more fun stuff. We are going to get to some lighter topics. We're going to talk a little bit about Toyota. We're going to talk about uh, racing. This is going to be good. I'll tell you about it here in just a minute. At the Speed Council, getting things done fast is our priority. We do everything fast from driving, working, sleeping, and eating. Someone help! He's choking! This is Tim. Hello. And by the time this ad is over, he'll have bicycled across the earth 69 times. Nice. Even if our name sounds unfamiliar, you know our work. 
F1? Pfft, child's play. The world's first supersonic jet? Yep, that was us. Apollo 11? Also us. The fastest animal in the sea? Hell, we even wrote the Wikipedia article. Fast. And we're so dedicated to speed that we've genetically engineered the world's first hyperspeed speed machine. With this scientific breakthrough, you can download your favorite automotive podcast a whole day early. How's that for fast? Patreon.com slash Throttle Warrior. Donate now. Download the show early and receive special perks. This message approved by the Speed Council and the Church of Fasting. All right, here we are rocking it for the third half of the Automotive ADHD show. Matt West here hanging out with you talking about cars. Yeah, those car sounds, by the way, were from Artem and his TVR Cerbera. I'm playing that car sound again because you heard it a couple weeks back, but it's super cool. That TVR Cerbera is such a unique vehicle, specifically that one, not just the Cerbera as a model, that specific Cerbera, which was on Ed Bolian's car track, that very one you heard there, as well as a bunch of automotive magazines, fun stuff. Listen to the show uh, in prior weeks. Go through your podcast feed. You'll find the whole story on that show. I took a, like half a segment to talk about that car. So very, very cool. Again, I want to thank Artem for sending that in. Now, I want to hit on this. Before we talk about Toyota and their track warranty stuff, there's a little bit of an update on that guy who had his warranty claim denied because he used his car on the track even though the problem was unrelated to the track incident. So we'll talk about that. But I saw this on uh, eBay. There is someone selling a set of Nissan GTR headlights. Okay, they're selling the headlights, pair of them. $10,000 a piece. 20 grand for the pair. What? That's a lot of money for a set of headlights. Like, I get that, you know, some enclosed uh, housing style headlights for a more modern car. They could be like two grand. Yeah, that's a lot of money. I wouldn't spend two grand on it, but they could be a couple thousand bucks. 20 grand though. Like you're thinking, man, this gotta be for the R34 GTR, right? Now, this is the R33. Everyone's least favorite GTR is, I would say arguably the R33, which I think it's everyone's least favorite in a kind of wrong way. I like the R33. I mean, from a performance standpoint, it's better than the R32. It's not quite the R34, but it's also the, it's also the underdog because it's, it was never really in fast and furious. Also because you can't really import them yet. The R32s we've had for a number of years here in the United States. I've seen several around town, even here in the Springs. Uh, now bear in mind, not every, these cars get mistakenly called GTRs a lot when Many of them are GTRs, but in fact, most of them aren't. They're just Skylines. The Skyline is a model, and the GTR is the top trim version of that model. A lot of times you will see the Skyline, say the GTST or any, you know, the regular Skylines are rear drive, and they're really cool. Don't get me wrong. I think they're still really cool cars. Uh, the RB engines are definitely interesting, the RB series of engines. Um, and anytime with the GTR specifically, you have a straight six turbocharged and all wheel drive performance car. That's cool because no one else is really doing that. Uh, well, no one else is doing that now anyway, but no one was doing it even at the time. You know, the Supra rear drive only, right? You know, straight six turbo rear drive. Um, no, the GTR straight six turbo all wheel drive. Very cool car. The R33 again, I like them. I do. They are the 
They are sort of the stepchild of the GTRs, you know, the intermediary. Everyone wants the R34, the Paul Walker one, whether you played, you know, played with that car in Gran Turismo or whatever, however you got your introduction to that. That's the one people want. The R33, again, is is cool. But these R33 headlights, these are HID headlights, which, ooh, yeah, they're the HIDs. And they're factory new and they're in the box. And yeah, that's cool. But 20 grand, whew. Oh, man. I mean, obviously, if they're for an R34, R34s now, the prices have gotten so inflated. I mean, we're talking half a million dollars for a car that was supposed to be an affordable alternative to something like a Porsche, like a 911 or, uh, you know, some, it was supposed to be an affordable alternative. The, you know, every man sports car in the Nissan lineup are definitely the every man sports cars are like the Z cars, you know, things like that. The GTRs, again, are a little more. They are targeted for a slightly more expensive demographic, but they were still supposed to be cheaper than the, you know, supercars of the time. And they definitely weren't supposed to be supercars by any means. But the fact that you get supercar money for them now is crazy. And the whole fact, too, is that you could if you could buy these headlights. You definitely could buy these headlights. Uh, and if you bought them and didn't even put them on a car, if you didn't even have an R33, you could buy them. And then probably hold on to them for a couple of years and then flip them for more money. Not saying you should. Don't, 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 don't do that. But um, you could buy a whole, like a 370Z, like a lightly used 370Z. You could buy for the price of these headlights. So um, that has uh, that has yet to see if, uh, if these actually sell for that price. But knowing how much people are paying for actual GTR stuff now is crazy. Uh, you, you won't find me spending that much money on one, namely because I don't have that much money to spend on it. So I couldn't if I wanted to. But even if I could, I don't know if I'd spend half a million on a GTR. There's uh, there's 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 faster cars around for that money. There are definitely faster cars around. But if your whole thing that you want to do, you, you're you're well off money wise and you want to spend some time cosplaying as Paul Walker, then you need an R34. I'm sorry. You just have to. If you're going to do a Paul Walker cosplay. You just got to have the R34. There's there's nothing for that. So that's an expensive cosplay. So there, there you go. Now, another thing I want to hit on here before we wrap the show up, Toyota, as you know, is, you know, the best car manufacturer around, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, no, they're, they're uh, they, I like them. I like Toyota. I definitely do. They, they have their, they have their shortcomings and I call them out on their shortcomings. And one of those shortcomings specifically is, Relating to the GR86, the twin of the new BRZ, they are mechanically identical cars um, with some minor suspension differences, but that's about it. Um, Subaru, so again, and it's it's always tough talking about these cars because the fact is, you know, Toyota built the chassis. Toyota does a lot of that, but Subaru does the drivetrain, the engine specifically. It is a Subaru flat four, a 2.4 liter and I talked a couple weeks ago uh, about how there is an issue uh, that's making the rounds where these engines have too much RTV silicone gasket applied at the oil pan area when they're being manufactured at the assembly plant. They have too much of that applied and the chunks of RTV that squish out from between the oil pan and the block then get into the oil. Th those, those chunks squish out, they go down into the oil pan and then they get picked back up by the oil pickup going to the oil pump. And then you get bad things that happen because you clogged up your oil pump and now you don't have oil pressure. And one of the fundamental things you need in most engines is oil pressure. If, if you don't have oil pressure, you're going to have a bad day because you're not going to have an engine for very long. 
And so the issue is that this is a known problem with these engines, uh, the use of the overuse of silicone in them. And Subaru and Toyota have acknowledged that this is a known issue. However, there was a gentleman uh, who was uh, using his uh, brand new 86 on the track. And it made quite a quite the headlines uh, because he was using it on the track, but not in any unusual circumstance. He was using it in an autocross, which autocross events are some of the lightest events you can do mechanically speaking on a car. They are the least destructive, in my opinion, to a car. They're very technical, but they're also at pretty low speeds. I've done num numerous autocross events. I do enjoy them. Uh, I don't get out to them as much as I should anymore. But, um, you know, the fact is you're maybe hitting like 60 tops. You're maybe second gear, maybe third gear, if that, in an autocross event. You're dodging cones. You're, you're navigating through a course of cones. And so he took his GR86 to one of those and then ran into an issue that grenaded the engine, which ultimately, after tearing the engine down, turned out to be the problem with the RTV, the silicone gasket, the known issue that has affected uh, BRZs and GR86s outside of track use. It is known, and Toyota has acknowledged that that is a known issue, but because he was using his car on the track when that happened, they denied his warranty claim, and he had to foot the bill pretty much for the engine. Now, the good news here is the update here is that Toyota um, finally has decided to, uh, with all the public outcry, and this is this is bad for their image, right? You know, when this happens to a car that they market for track use, right? They market this for use on the track. And then this happens. I mean, and then they deny a warranty claim after you use a car on track that they market as being used on track. Um, that, see, that kind of is counterintuitive to the marketing and to their overall image. So they have uh, decided to work with him a little bit, and he should be getting some relief uh, because they are going to uh, they are going to foot the bill for the repairs now, uh, which some of the repairs he took on started taking on by himself. Um, but that said, uh, they changed their mind, which is good. Again, one thing I respect Toyota for is they listen to their customers for the most part. And especially when pretty much all of the automotive media starts calling them out on it. You know, they definitely listen to this podcast. I'm sure they do. <laughs> uh, maybe that's a little pretentious to think that. But uh, when when a lot of people start calling them out on it, they do take action. That happened with the, uh, the Toyota key fob debacle earlier this year as well. So that's good to see now. Uh, and I have to give a uh, hat tip to uh, the folks at the drive, specifically Kristen Lee for this, because... Uh, she reached out to Toyota about the track warranty or warranty for track use on the GR Corolla, which is the uh, very, very cool rally inspired Corolla hatchback um, with uh, the three cylinder Yaris engine, the GR Yaris engine, Yaris, Yaris, tomato, tomato. Um, and uh, that's it's it's really cool. I mean, it's a it's a three cylinder. It's a turbo. I mean, it's. Um, it's, it's, it's really cool. It's a new, it's a new platform though. Here's the thing. It is a new platform. That means, you know, you could have issues with it, whatever turns. It's looking like those engines are going to be really good, but they, uh, Kristen Lee from the drive reached out to Toyota asking about the warranty coverage on the GR Corolla as well, because it is also marketed because of it with its, uh, track use in mind. And, um, Toyota has said that they will, um, you know, th th that they will generally speaking, cover things 
in light of this other incident with the track stuff, they will generally say they, they say that it covers responsible driving at track days, which is a little open to interpretation. I'm sure if you money shift the car, you go from, uh, I don't know, you know, fourth to third, you know, at the wrong time, you, you do something like that. You grenade the engine. That's probably not going to be deemed responsible track driving. Um, but what's uh, good is that it doesn't look like they will necessarily deny claims just because, uh-oh, something happened and you were on the track when it happened. That doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. I mean, again, when we talk about Toyota's marketing here and it being marketed as a track forward type thing, we're talking about how when you buy a GR Corolla, you get a one-year membership to uh, the National Autosport Association, NASA, which is a big sanctioning body for racing, and you get one free coached track day session when you buy the car, right? So they are saying, buy our car, take it to the track, and then suddenly coming out and denying a warranty claim for something that is a known issue that just happened to happen on the track? That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And I think Toyota's press department is uh, is seeing that, and Toyota as a whole is saying, okay, <laughs> We got to do something to, to, you know, mitigate this a little bit. Now, again, it's not an all-inclusive warranty. I would say anytime you take a car to the track, as someone who tracks their car with no warranty, because my car is far too old, to, my car's warranty expired, you know, what, 18 years? My, my car's warranty is so far expired, it could vote. Let me put it that way. Um, and uh, so, <laughs> you know, racing a lot without a warranty you, you know the risk of it. And I think owners should accept that risk too, whether or not your car is new, just in general. Anytime you track your car, it's it's good to understand that something can go wrong. Track use is definitely heavier duty use than street use. And typically, I would say a safe practice would be just assume it's not going to be covered under warranty if something happens, but still take it in and see if you can get the warranty. And if you can, that's good. But I think if you are relying on a warranty, when you're tracking your car, even if your car is designed for track use, I get that. But things happen on the track. Track stuff is hard wear and tear. No matter what you do, autocross isn't that bad. It's probably the least wear and tear intensive. But regardless, if you're tracking the car just and it's a new car, just know that no, the warranty might not cover that. I would be interested to do some research into how um, other brands like uh, Porsche, Ferrari, who also market certain cars for track use, handle this warranty stuff. I feel like we don't hear as much uh, press about warranty claims on those cars. Also because the folks who actually buy Ferraris, you know, probably don't actually drive them to the track. I mean, the furthest they drive is probably, you know, the uh, country club with some golf equipment in the back. But anyway, what can I do now? Hey, one last thing before I wrap the show up, you don't want to miss next week's show. I have a really exciting guest joining me on the show. Joe Ligo is scheduled to join me, and uh, this is going to be really cool. He is the driving force behind the AMC documentary. Now, I talked about this documentary a couple months ago, right here on the show. You may recognize it. And, and, and I sort of jokingly said, yeah, I'll try to get him on the show. And then I emailed him and he said yes for some godforsaken reason. So <laughs> anyway, I'm really excited. Uh, he's going to be a guest on the show. He's going to talk about his documentary about the storied past of American Motors, perhaps one of my favorite car companies overall. So, uh, and I own a couple of their products, which sometimes run. So <laughs> needless to say, I'm really excited for this. And you want to subscribe to this podcast to not miss any second of that. Also subscribing does help push the show up in the rankings. So please do that. You can help 
help get the show in front of other people. And don't forget to give it a rating, six stars. Let's make Spotify add an entire six star just for this. So I will see you right here, same time, same place next week when Joe Ligo joins me to talk about AMC.